Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. And in Romans, we learn that God's righteousness is a free gift given to us by his grace. And the way to receive that righteousness is to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, that just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness from Genesis chapter 15, verse 7, So whenever we believe and trust God for salvation, he counts that to us as righteousness. It is the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the believer that's credited to our account. It's like getting a, uh, it's like going to the bank to get a line, uh, to get a loan and, uh, God is the cosigner and he has infinite resources in his account. And so they don't even man, they don't even take the time to look at our uh, deficit bank account that has nothing in it because it's backed by an unlimited bank account of God, and that is the positive righteousness and the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so we are saved not on the basis of who we are, what we've done, or anything we're going to do. We're saved because of the righteousness of Christ. So Romans is about. God's righteousness, how man acquires it judicially in terms of justification by faith, and how man then, how justified man can demonstrate this experientially. That's Romans 6, 7, and 8, as we'll see next, next week at the pastor's conference. And then how God's righteousness demonstrates his Faithfulness to Israel, that's Romans 9, 10, and 11. And then how we are to live in light of God's righteousness, and that's chapter 12 to the end of the book. So righteousness gives us that, that, that framework, that basic theme for understanding Romans. Faith to faith means it's revealed from faith, that is faith, initial faith in Christ, to faith, that is sanctifying faith, or in terms of experiential sanctification, Christian life faith uh, is a second faith. As it is written, the justified by faith shall live. The focus ultimately in Romans is not just on the great doctrines of salvation. Those are there in Romans 3 and Romans 4 and Romans 5, but the rest of the epistle is focusing on how those who are justified by faith should live. And then in verse 4, there is a, I mean, verse 18, there is a shift, and the introduction to, the, to this verse is the word for. And most of the time in English, when you see the, the English word for, it's a translation of the Greek word gar, which advances the argument. That's, that's its role grammatically. It advances to the next step. Sometimes it's an explanation. Sometimes it, it steps things up a little bit. Sometimes it almost has the sense of because in terms of an explanation, and it almost borders on that in this verse. What we have here is the beginning of a section that goes down to Romans chapter 3, 
down to verse uh, 20. And verse 20 states, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified by, in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And the point there is that uh, no one in, in the chapters from this 118 down to uh, 320, Paul is arguing that no one can measure up to God's righteousness. His justice must be satisfied. His justice can only be satisfied if his, if his righteousness is, uh, if man can qualify according to the righteousness of God. And so his justice must condemn that which does not qualify according to God's righteousness. And only creatures who qualify on the basis of God's righteousness can, re- can be declared just. So basically the indictment against the human race is given in Romans 1.18 uh, to 3.20. And then the solution to the indictment uh, follows after that from Romans uh, 3.21 down through the end of chapter 5. So Romans 1.18 begins by talking about this judgment of God. And as I pointed out last time, we have this phrase, the wrath of God. And for the most part, there are a couple of places that I think are a little bit ambiguous, but aside from those, the majority of the verses that speak of the wrath of God are verses that speak of God's discipline or judgment within human history. They're not talking about condemnation at the great white throne judgment. They're not talking about... Uh, the wrath of God in the lake of fire. They're talking about God's judgment upon uh, mankind within or during human history. And this is uh, seen in some passages. For example, uh, you have some passages where the wrath of God is related to the tribulation period, that period known from the Old Testament as the uh, time of... of, uh, uh, Daniel's 70th week, it is the time of, of Jacob's wrath when this has appeared specifically uh, related to God's plan and purposes for Israel. But, you know, some people have overplayed the hand. There's a lot that happens in Israel, but this wrath po- is poured out on the entire human race. The reason it's called Jacob's wrath and the role of Israel is because as God is pouring out his judgment on the human race, the human race blames Israel, just like they do today, whether they're right or wrong, or no matter what the circumstances. Uh, often, um, in fact, I was listening on a uh, conference call yesterday, and one of the uh, people on the call asked the, uh, the speaker, who was a uh, retired director of Shin Beit, which is the internal security uh, agency in Israel, was asking him uh, what Israel could do to uh, show uh, some level of legitimacy to the Arabs. And he said, you know, it doesn't matter what they do, right or wrong. Uh, the, the Arabs are either going to ignore it if it's right or they're going to distort it. Uh, they just don't accept. The world, the nations of the world are always distorting Israel. They're always antagonistic to Israel. This is not going to change. And what will happen during the time of uh, the tribulation is that as God pours out his judgment on the human race as a whole and the planet as a whole, 
uh, what do the kings of the earth do? They blame Israel, so they're going to attack Israel because of the judgment that's coming their way because of their disobedience and antagonism to God, which is typical human behavior. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. I'm going to blame them and then attack them for it. So that's, uh, that's sort of what goes on during the tribulation period. So wrath is used in that sense to refer to that coming uh, eschatological judgment. Luke 3, 7, Jesus, uh, or rather John the Baptist, he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. He's talking about this future judgment. Remember, John the Baptist was announcing that the kingdom was at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And for the kingdom of God to come, there must first be that period, that seven-year period of judgment on mankind. And so that's how, why he is phrasing it as the wrath to come. Because as he's announcing the coming of the kingdom, that would necessitate that this period of a tribulation would occur before that, and so they would be coming to him uh, hoping to avoid the tribulation, the wrath to come. In Luke 21:23, Jesus is talking about a time of judgment that will come actually in A.D. 70, during the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, the defeat of the Jews in the, in the Jewish revolt by uh, the armies of Titus and the destruction of the, Jerus- uh, the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon his people. Again, talking about temporal judgment. We have it used that same way in 1 Thessalonians 5.9 when Paul says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, that is, those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are members of the body of Christ. God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. And there we would understand that deliverance, not not uh, salvation from uh, the penalty of sin, but salvation from or deliverance from not going through that future judgment of the tribulation to obtain deliverance through our Lord Jesus Christ. But then it also relates in other passages to non-future events, just the ongoing divine discipline in time. For example, John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now that's a verse where people would say, hmm, that seems to be future judgment, the lake of fire except for the present tense verb there. The wrath of God doesn't say, but the wrath of God will abide on him, but the wrath of God, present tense, abides on him, which is exactly what our our passage in um, Romans 1.18 is saying. Again, we have a present tense verb here as well, that the wrath of God is revealed. That's now. That's not talking about in the future. That's talking about right now. This is a, a, a what's called a, a nomic uh, or, or a habitual present, indicating something that is going on uh, throughout time. It's a habitual um, describes a habitual situation, so or customary situation, customary uh, present tense here. 
So we see that, that um, God's wrath is a present reality. So those who do not believe in the Son are under wrath and continue under wrath. Just That's exactly what Romans 1.18 is saying. Romans 5.9, Paul writes, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And there if we understand wrath to be dis- divine discipline in time, then it's talking about uh, sanctification truth, spiritual life truth, that if we are walking in obedience with God, we will avoid divine discipline and the temporal judgments of God uh, uh, upon uh, our life. So having been justified by his blood, that is past tense, we shall be uh, delivered from wrath through him. Colossians 3, 6 So it's because of these things the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Again, that's a customary uh, present. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.16, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. So these are all uses of wrath in terms of present situations, either uh, circumstance that's already occurred with results that are continuing or just speaking of these with a customary present tense, which emphasizes ongoing, uh, an ongoing state or ongoing action from God. And so when we read Romans 1.18, Paul says, The wrath of God is being poured out right now. It's being revealed or manifested or displayed Right now, it's because there is sin in the earth, because, I mean, sin in the world, because the human race is rejecting God. God is going to uh, judge the human race. There, and this happens two different ways. It's not all fire and brimstone raining down from heaven like it did at Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, God has built into the structure of of human relationships and the human soul cause and effect so that when we violate God's uh, God's law, when we violate God's standards, to put it clear, I'm not using the word law there in terms of the Mosaic law, but when we violate God's standards, there are consequences that come into effect. And that's what we see in the coming uh, in the rest of this chapter, Paul is going to outline, starting in verse 24, how God uh, ha- allows these consequences to enter into human history and uh, social, re- in social relationships, marriage relationships, family relationships, which end up having dis- disruptive and destructive consequences. And there are three stages that God uh, takes the human race through in terms of giving them uh, enough rope to hang themselves, basically, just easiest way to describe it. God is going to say, okay, you want to reject me? Great, I'm just going to pull back uh, my level of control a little bit, let you, um, if you uh, know anything about riding a horse, you give the horse his head, let him take control, and eventually he will make a mistake. And that's sort of the idea here, that God just sort of pulls back the restraints and gives man the opportunity to uh, uh, have, his own, have his head and have his way and leads him into even greater, uh, greater destruction. So the principle that he's going to describe that's laid down in this 
opening verse is that God's judgment in time, in history, in, as, a, as an ongoing state of human history, is revealed from heaven. And it's revealed from heaven because heaven is the location of the, God's throne as the sovereign ruler of the universe, as the creator God who rules over everything. Uh, he is the one who, in his providential care, uh, oversees the uh, the execution of his judgment, and then the text goes to say, goes on to say it is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. The word ungodliness is asabeya, which indicates that which violates God uh, God's character and probably relates to idolatry, and especially in the sense of the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments, and unrighteousness adikeya, that which is a violation of uh, the last six commandments in terms of relation to in terms of its violation of human uh, human relationships. Incidentally, First John five, Paul says that all adikeia is sin. This is the same word that's used in First John one nine. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and that all unrighteousness is sin. Same word, adikeia. So he covers everything by these two words, ungodliness and unrighteousness. And ungodliness probably alludes to forms of idolatry because that is exactly what gets brought into the context beginning in verse 21. So there's every reason to allow this word to have that particular uh, connotation. So God is not passively sitting off somewhere in heaven. He is actively involved in allowing the human race to reap the consequences, what you sow you will reap, reaping the consequences of their rejection of him, and he oversees that so that uh, things are not always as bad as they could be. One of the ways he oversees it is through the restrainer. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 says that the Antichrist won't be revealed until the restrainer is removed. And the restrainer is a term for God the Holy Spirit who is working in history right now to restrain evil so things can't get as bad as people think they will. Uh, that doesn't mean they can't get bad. But um, we, you know, whenever things are in economic uncertainty, and whenever things are in political uncertainty, and trust me, things are not in good shape right now. Uh, they're not in good shape nationally. They're not in good shape internationally. For the last hundred years, most uh, most nations have operated on uh, monetary theories that have basically created huge Ponzi schemes. There's not a single currency in the world that is backed by anything of value. Uh, we don't, we're not on a gold standard. They're not on a silver stand, standard. They're not, they're not on a dirt standard. They're, they're the only thing that gives value to a dollar, a ruple, a British pound, whatever, is the confidence of the people in that particular government. And the U.S. dollar is sort of the king currency. And there are more and more articles coming out that indicate that this may not continue. 
And if that doesn't continue, and it's not going to change overnight, it may take 10. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday talking about how this could take uh, 10 years, and we might see a period where you have a lot of competition between uh, two or three or four different currencies for which one will be the primary international currency. But when the dollar is king, everybody trades everything on the basis of dollars. And so other when the dollar gets weak, other countries feel the impact of that more than we do. But if we go into if if they're right, I don't know if they're right or not, but if they're right, then the, and the the dollar is no longer the international standard and some other currency becomes the international standard, then what that means is you're going to see inflation like you never saw it before. And you're going to see the cost of gasoline go so high, you're going to uh, uh, think twice before you. Everybody's going to go out and buy bicycles and um, whatever they need to get around because they can't afford gas, a triple in cost, because gasoline oil is all traded in on dollars. But if it's traded on some other basis, then that will change. One of the reasons for that is the, the U.S. goes into debt, but if they want to pay off the debt, they just print more dollars. And they're able to do that. But other countries can't do that. So that all of this works together to create a lot of problems. And so one of the consequences in any time you have levels of international instability, the threat of a world war, uh, this happened back in the 30s. It happened uh, all the, you know from the late 20s all the way up into to World War II is that people were running around saying that the sky is falling. And by the sky is falling, I don't mean that they weren't honest about Hitler and the rise of Nazi power in Europe or the threat of Japanese power. That was real. There were real dangers. There were real economic dangers, and real economic suffering went on. But it didn't lead to Armageddon. It didn't lead to an eschatological collapse. There was a lot of suffering. There were a lot of things that were not good that happened, but it wasn't the end of civilization. It could have been. Why wasn't it the end of civilization? Because of the restrainer, because it's not time yet. I do believe that all hell is going to break loose, and there will be massive famines, and there will be massive uh, economic collapse, and there will be massive wars all over the earth. But if the Bible is right, and I think it is, that doesn't happen until you get into that seven-year period. That doesn't happen now, and you won't see that. That doesn't mean you won't see a World War III, something like World War II. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that we Christians today are panicking. I'm hearing this. Oh, we have to go store food for the next five years. Let me tell you, if you have a disaster where you need to have a year's worth of stored food, you're not going to eat it. Because all of the illegal immigrants are going to sniff it out and you won't survive. Your ammunition will run out first. We have to learn to trust God. That doesn't mean you take no, don't take normal precautions and wise precautions. I'm not saying that. But there's a difference between taking a wise, wise precautions. For example, in Texas, we're used to that. You need to have your little hurricane kit ready to go. You need to have you know, a certain amount of water stored somewhere because if your electricity goes out, if you live out somewhere, uh, there are places in Houston, some of you may even have an electric pump. I, when I lived up in Connecticut, we had a, a, a well. 
but it ran on an electric pump. So in the winter, it, was, it didn't happen in the summer up there. It happened in the winter when you'd get an ice storm and some limb would fall off a tree and take out the power, and you'd be out of power for three days. That meant you were out of water for three days because you couldn't get the pump running. So you had to have enough water on hand and all these other things. That's just what I call normal precautions as opposed to a year or two years' worth of supplies on hand because if it gets that bad, folks, it's going to be a whole lot worse than, than you think it's going to be. It really is. And we need to recognize that it. I believe that it's not going to ever get to that extent because of the Holy Spirit because he is the restrainer, because God is in control. God oversees history, and things are going to come to that to an end the way God said they are, not the way, uh, you know, your favorite TV prognosticator uh, says it's, it's going to be. And so until the Lord comes back, until the rapture, the worst-case scenario won't happen. The best-case scenario is not going to happen either. It's going to be somewhere in between, and guess what? You'll be surprised. Just like I, I just wonder, all these prophecy prognosticators that figured out what was going to happen in Egypt and what was going to happen in Libya and what was going to happen in Ethiopia and all these other countries mentioned in the Bible in terms of the, the tribulation period have to go back and redo everything because everything they've written the last 20 years is, is, is out of date now. And they don't know how it's going to end up because we don't know what's going to happen in Libya. We don't know if there's going to be a major uh, revolt in Saudi Arabia on March the 11th when they have their day of rage. We don't know if that's going to spill over to uh, uh, Yemen and Kuwait and all these other countries. We don't know what's going to happen in Saudi Arabia. We're in the middle of a huge shift right now. It's just fascinating how things are going to end up. But we may not know for two or three years. And so we're just going to have to re- trust in the Lord and relax, recognize that um, things could get tough, things could get bad. You know, if you have a job, everything's going well, things don't get bad for you. But if you lose your job and things aren't going well, it's just as bad for you as an individual as if it was like that way for everybody. So you have to take wise precautions. You're just the old Western saying, you have to keep your powder dry. You have to be prepared for whatever circumstance might come in a normal, common sense. I'll use the word common sense, but that's so uncommon I don't want to use it. But without going into a panic mode, thinking that somehow we're going to hit the big apocalyptic disaster uh, coming our way. So anyway, that's my rant for the evening. The wrath of God is displayed numerous ways in history. You have the rise and fall of civilizations. You have the rise and fall of countries. You have the rise and fall of cultures. This is the result of sin. That's what the Bible says. It is because of the rejection of God. I have a new definition for sin. We've historically defined sin as anything that violates the character of God. And that is a good definition. Uh, I've come up with a new definition. New definition of sin is when the creature acts independently of the creator. That has a broader sense to it, and it includes all kinds of moral deeds that are not normally classified as sin. Because the basic act that of Eve in the garden 
was eating the fruit, not on most people's list of sin. Most of you have done that today or ought to have done that today. But eating a piece of fruit isn't sin. What is sin is acting independently of God. And when we act in autonomy, then we're, create, we're making ourselves and our standards equivalent to God's standards. We become self-idolatrous. And so once that happens in, within the human race, there are all manner of different consequences that happen, and eventually it leads to the collapse of personal life, it leads to the collapse of family life, it leads to the collapse of businesses, it leads to the collapse of nations, it leads to the collapse of civilizations. And that's, that is what this whole, the rest of this chapter is really describing. So the wrath of God is, re, is revealed against this, and the core problem, as we'll see, is idolatry. It is worshiping something as the absolute standard and reference point of the universe other than God, whether it's a, an animal, whether it is a, a, an idol made of wood or metal or stone, or whether it is some abstract um, ideal that we have exploded into some sort of universal principle, all of which can be different forms of idolatry. Now, the, the way the text reads is that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So the focal point is on the human race. Only the human race among God's creatures other than angels Consent, because they are sentient beings that have volition. You can't sin if you don't have volition. The animals don't have volition. Now, I know as a dog lover and dog owner, there were times when I was really convinced they had a sin nature. Everybody who's a dog owner or cat owner is aware of that. Cats are just arrogant to the core, the dogs aren't quite as arrogant, but they're, I think, just as corrupt in some way. But they, they're not volitional. They're not sentient beings as we are, so there's not an accountability there. This is the unrighteousness of men because the standard is given to men, men and men alone, not excluding women. Human beings alone are created in the image of God, male and female, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And we're created as image bearers to reflect God. And when we, when we deny God and we put ourselves in the position of God, then we're, a, we're violating our core humanity. You cannot be a genuine human if you do not recognize that you are here to reflect God, not to be God. And when you take God off the throne and sit down on the throne yourself, then you have violated your humanity. And so all these people who run around touting, uh, t- touting the fact that they are uh, the ones who believe in humanity, who believe in humanism and all of the values of mankind, but deny God, are in effect murdering humanity. They have destroyed it ideologically and reduce man to the level of an animal. Now, there's another phrase here that comes along that is 
uh, a relative clause. There's not a comma there. There should not be a comma there as there is in the, um, uh, in the King James text. I don't know about other, other uh, translations. But this is against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, the word that is used here to describe the suppression of truth in unrighteousness is the Greek verb kat echo, kat echo, and it means to push something down. It means to shove something down. It's like when you're, you know how it is when you, it's late at night, it's 9.30 or 10, and you raided that box of Oreos again and emptied it, or you finished off that ice cream carton, and you have to go put it in the trash, and it's already overflowing, and you just have to shove that stuff down in there because the last thing you want to do is take that, empty the garbage and take it out to the garbage can. That's what kateko means. It means to push it down, to shove it down, to suppress it, to deny the reality that you have to take out the garbage and to act in an alternate universe that somehow you're going to get that uh, empty bluebell carton down into that, uh, that garbage can and it just isn't ever going to fit. So that's kateko. It is the rejection of God. It is uh, a description here of the men who are practicing ungodliness and unrighteousness. To worship an idol means that uh, you also have to be denying truth. At the same time you are affirming error, you have to be denying and suppressing truth. And you do it, and the phrase is, in unrighteousness or by means of unrighteousness, the kind of thinking that is entailed in, in denying God is unrighteousness. This is what is described all through the Old Testament. It is the opposite of tzedakah, which is the Hebrew word for righteousness. It violates the standard of God's perfection. So we think in an unrighteous way to suppress the truth and the reality of the existence of God. Now, why do they suppress the truth in unrighteousness? This is described in the next verse. Because, why do they suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness or by unrighteousness? Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Now, this is really an interesting verse. The first thing states that God has... God, the knowledge of God, what may be known of God, is the knowledge of God's existence. This is a universal principle that is stated for all mankind. It's revealed, uh, the, the, the terminology here relates to all mankind. Anthropos is used here, which is equivalent to our word for humanity. All mankind, male and female. And then Paul says, what may be known of God. So there is positive content to the meaning of the word God in his existence and reality is manifest in them prior to everything else, prior to seeing and observing creation, prior to anything else, the scripture says the knowledge of God is embedded in the soul of every human being because they're in the image of God. There is a point and counterpoint between deity and the image of God in us so that 
our souls automatically, inherently vibrate to the existence of God because you're a human being. doesn't matter how many arguments for atheism or agnosticism that you generate. An atheist is a person who doesn't believe that God exists. The the A at the beginning is the Greek alpha, which is the negation of the word like our uh, prefix UN in English. So a theist is somebody who believes in the existence of God. An atheist is somebody who does not believe in the existence of God. If somebody says that it is wrong to talk about God in the classroom because any statement that affirms the existence of God is teaching religion, then it is also wrong to teach that God doesn't exist because the statement God exists is as as theological and religious as the statement that God does not exist. That Just because you negate the statement doesn't mean it becomes non-religious. The statement that there is no God, or I'm not sure if there is a God, are just as strong religious statements as the statement there is a God. And so you have to realize that whenever anybody speaks or teaches about ethics, whenever they teach speak or teach about ultimate reality, whenever they speak or teach about creation, they are making a statement, a religious statement. They're either saying God exists, they're saying we don't know if God exists, or they're saying that God does not exist. Whatever they're saying, if they're saying one of three things, they can't avoid that. Anything and everything ultimately goes back to one of those three positions. It's ultimately a religious statement. Now, I've had people who say, well, you know, I don't understand that. Three or four years later, after they thought about it, they go, you know, you're right. Everything always goes back to a religious statement. If you say, I believe X is right or X is wrong, and somebody says, well, how do you know that? When ultimately to prove your case, you have to affirm some sort of ultimate value. And where does that ultimate value come from? Either the creature or God. But you've made something God, either the creature, man, or uh, God, revelation, something of that nature. You, 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 everything related to an ultimate reality is religious, whether you want to admit that or not. We live in a world that wants to say only the positive statements about God are religious, statements that there is not a God. That's okay. That's not religious. That's irrationality, which is exactly what this text is, is going to uh, demonstrate. Romans one nineteen though, Paul says that God created man in his image and likeness, and what that means is that from day one, the creature knows he's a creature. He knows that he's the mirror image of God. And what happens because of volition is that he starts to suppress it. I don't want anybody else to be over me. I'm going to figure out how to, how to deny that and how to justify that reality, how to come up with arguments and evidence and philosophies and rationales to prove that there is no God. And then what happens is as soon as somebody comes along and says, well, you know, maybe there's a little evidence here that there's something out there beyond us, then they just go ballistic. Remember the film that we saw um, last year in... Uh, uh, that uh, Ben, uh, what's it, Ben Stein did? What was the name of that? Hmm? 
Expelled, that's right. Expelled. No room for God in, in the classroom, in science, anywhere. And he would go and he would, and nobody expected Ben Stein to be a believer in God or that Ben Stein didn't believe in evolution. And he, so they let him in and they, as it were, just sort of let everything hang out because they thought that they were with a friend. And as soon as he would start bringing up some little bit of evidence that, that, and point out that something that they affirmed had a major flaw in it, the reaction was way beyond anything that you would they would just go ballistic because what it means is that their this whole house of cards they've constructed to 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 justify their life and their belief system and everything else is threatened if god exists then everything they're devoting their life to and for is wrong and and their belief system is wrong, and their value system is wrong, and, and everything else is wrong, and they can't stand that. And so they have to squash it. All of a sudden, that which they've suppress it, been suppressing in the corner of their soul, which is the reality of the existence of God, starts to wiggle a little bit, and the carpet starts to, to move a little bit, and they have to go over there and take a 20-ton a, a uh, stone and drop it on that corner carpet so that God doesn't come out again. But next thing you know, the other corners, something's starting to come up over there. God is not going to let them rest. So Paul says, first of all, what may be known about God is clear from the intelligent design argument. So he says, no, it's not. He says it's manifest in them. It is something that God built into every human being from creation. The nature of being human is that you know you're in the image of God. You're a reflection of him. For, and then it goes to the next level, for God has shown it to them. Not only is there something internal in the makeup of man, but there is something external where God has shown it to them. Well, how did God show it to them? Romans one twenty. Romans one twenty says that for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, I just love the juxtaposition of ideas here. The invisible is clearly seen. How do you see something that's invisible? The idea there that the literal meaning of the word phaneros there is not a phanerao isn't that it's uh, it's clearly seen, but that it is it's apparent, it's obvious, it's understood. That's the uh, figurative sense of uh, something that is clearly seen. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes. See, Scripture says that God is a spirit. He's not. He's not flesh and blood. He's not mortal. He doesn't have a physical corporeal body. He is spirit. So how do we see him? Well, you see him by the effects of his work. Since the creation of, the, of his world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen because they are understood by the things that are made. Even the eternal power and Godhead. Now, we're going to get into understanding the breakdown of this in a minute. There's a lot of implications here. But the bottom line is God is saying that if you look at creation, creation came from the hand of God. 
God's brand is stamped on everything he created so that there's something in man and in man's makeup as the image of God so that when he looks at anything in God's creation, you see the stars, you see the water, you see the plants, the flowers, the animals, the trees, whatever you see, because you're made in the image of God with God's brand stamped on you, when you look at a flower or an animal, you also see God's brand stamped there. And these two things resonate with each other so that you know God exists. That's what Paul is saying. They are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to be able to go out and say God is sovereign and God is just and God is righteous and God is love and he's eternal life and omniscient, 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 omnipresent, omnipotent, uh, veracity and immutability. It's general revelation. You don't have the specificity of special revelation. What I just said are the are the attributes of God we learn from special revelation. All general revelation gets us is the fact that we know God exists. We know that he is greater than we are, that, and we have this sense that he is righteous and good. Have you ever noticed that, that um, the unbelievers are always trying to accuse Christians of saying, how can you believe in this God that allows all these bad things to happen? Well, what I want to say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, let's not talk about that right now. You don't believe there's a God. And if you don't believe there's a God, then you don't have an ultimate reference point to even talk about what's bad and what's good. Where do you get the concept of evil if there's not an ultimate reference point of righteous and good that you can compare it to? You ever thought about that? You can't talk about good and bad if you don't have a God or you don't have something out there that's the source of, of what's good and what's bad. I mean, just because you think lying is bad, that's just your culture. If there's no external absolute, then you can't run around and say you're telling you You go to some cultures in, in uh, Papua New Guinea, and they believe that lying and deception and being able to deceive another person to the point where it costs them their life is the greatest virtue in life. Who's to say they're wrong if there's not some ultimate reference point? And what this verse is saying is that in general revelation, there is enough evidence of God's existence to hold every human being accountable for the knowledge of God. And it's not based necessarily on understanding rational philosophical arguments for the existence of God. Because it's ultimately based on what is manifest in them. That God put in you and me and in every human being from Madeline Murray O'Hare to... Uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, to whomever, has put deep in their soul the brand of God. And that means that within them there, is, there was at some point a knowledge that God existed. And at that point, they had to decide whether they wanted to know more about God or not. And they could either seek God or reject God, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And, and most people suppress. 
They're just out there trying to stuff everything down the garbage can because they don't want to admit there's even garbage there because then they have to take out the garbage. And so they just want to stuff it all down the garbage can of their soul and keep it stuffed down and keep it suppressed. So it's not ultimately based on understanding these sophisticated articulations of arguments for the existence of God. Not that those don't have some role to play, but based on the exegesis of this passage, it goes beyond that. It goes before that. It goes back to the three-year-olds and the four-year-olds and the five-year-olds who never heard of the cosmological argument of God or the Kazam version of the cosmological argument of God or the teleological argument for God or the ontological argument for the existence of God. Because when they were three years old, when they were four years old, when they were five years old, there was a God's brand in their soul was telling them that when they looked at a daffodil and when they looked at a snowflake and when they looked at a raindrop and when they saw the, the clouds form in the heavens, there was something in their soul that said, God exists or something greater than I am. And they either said yes or no to that. They wanted to know more about it or they rejected it. And from that point on, that wasn't the final decision. Later on, if they say no, later on they could say yes. They said yes, later on they could say no. But what this verse is saying is that the most devout, dedicated uh, atheist in all of history at one point knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God existed. And it was evident within their soul. As a, and the external is what brings out the internal. So, Romans 1.20 for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even by his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. When they show up before the throne of God, and they can't say, well, God, there just wasn't enough evidence. God said, looking at the stars at night wasn't enough evidence. Psalm 19.1, for the heavens declare the glory of God. It's nonverbal. But you go out someplace, you go out in the country, get away from Houston a little bit, and uh, you go out and look at the stars when the moon's, you don't have a full moon, and you just see just millions and millions of stars. And you sit there and think, well, you know, is there something greater than us? E.T., well, that's what some people do to suppress God. So it comes down to knowledge. And I put this up many times, and you have to understand this. This is critical. If you're going to think critically, you have to understand this. If you just want to go along and read whatever somebody says in the newspaper or whatever somebody says in some textbook, fine, but you'll never learn to think critically. There are, there are four ways in which we think and that we look for authority in knowledge. Somebody says, how do you know that's true? Well, it's either because of reason, it's because of empiricism, that is the validation of things in the, in the laboratory, or it's because of mysticism, you just have some sort of intuitive uh, insight into the nature of things, or it's because somebody told you it was true. That's authority. It's for, in, in terms of Christianity, that's called revelation. So we have these uh, basically, two different ways. The first three are all manifestations of the same thing. 
we have rationalism. Rationalism is the belief that human reason alone can arrive at truth. What's the object of your faith? Because it's really based on faith ultimately. It's based on faith ultimately. I keep backing. Let me get this in here. Okay. It's ultimately based on faith in human ability, human intellectual ability. That's the focus of faith, is I believe man is capable of doing it. That's part of humanism. Man can do it. He doesn't need God. He can do it all by himself. Now, these are, uh, examples of this would be Plato in the ancient world, Descartes in the uh, modern world. But in terms of philosophy, philosophical idealism and rationalism has always collapsed under its own weight because it can't get to ultimate truth. So the method is always on the basis of logic and reason, but it can't get beyond a certain point. So rationalism historically is always followed by empiricism. Empiricism says that uh, truth comes from observing what we can see, taste, touch, feel. It's based on the uh, five senses. So it follows a scientific method, but again, it's, it's faith that man is neutral and that he can properly and accurately interpret the data that comes in through his senses. And again, it uses, uh, a, it's based on a rigorous use of logic and reason. Empiricism has always failed. Aristotle was an ancient empiricist. Uh, Barclay, Hume, Locke were modern empiricists, but empiricism has always collapsed. If we can't get to truth on the basis of reason, and we can't get to truth on the basis of empiricism, where are we going to go? Well, we're just going to leap into the void. We're just going to take this big leap of faith, as Kierkegaard called it. We're just going to believe it because I can't live... I can't live in the darkness and the skepticism that neither reason nor empiricism can give me the answer. That's too hopeless. But I know there has to be meaning. I, I can't live in a meaningless world. I can't live in So I either have to turn to drugs or I have to turn to alcohol or I have to turn to sensual pleasure or to success, ambition, you know, something to give meaning in my life because... Reason can't give me the answer. Experience can't give me the answer. And then there are those who turn to mysticism, some sort of internal religious hot flash. I just know it because it's true. And so this is based, just like rationalism, on some sort of inner private mental event, but it is not based on logic or reason. It's irrational. It's non-verifiable. How do you know it's true? I just know it's true. Mormons say, because I have the burning in my bosom. See, Mormonism is ultimately grounded in mysticism. Islam is too, by the way, because you have the same kind of thing going on with Muhammad when he's up there with the, with the jinn in the cave getting the Quran. Same kind of mystical thing. So it's irrational and it's illogical. In contrast, you have Revelation. You have God who's outside of creation, who is not a creature, who is not subject to the laws of creation. And he is saying, I was there when I created everything. Let me tell you how I did it. He's an eyewitness. He is, he's an authority. He's giving you that information. Just like when you, when you first went to first grade and the teacher said one plus one equals two, you believed him. 
sooner or later you figured out there was a demonstration of that. Also, your parents would tell you, don't do this and don't do that. And you believed them. It was on the basis of authority. That's what Revelation is analogous to. It's on the basis of authority. God reveals to us, and then on the be- that revelation, though, is you can validate. That's why in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 13 has tests of a prophet. Deuteronomy 18 had tests of a prophet because there are going to be those who come along and say, God told me this, and God says this is how you evaluate whether it's true or not. So it's not like you're just, it's not what's called fideism. Fideism is you're just going to believe it because that's what you ought to believe. God says, I've got, I am embedding my word with all points of, all kinds of validation points. Nothing in archaeology has ever disproven any claim in the Bible. Nothing in history has ever disproven any claim in the Bible. Nothing that has ever been discovered has ever disproven anything in the Bible. There have been claims again and again and again over the last 200 years that have said, well, the Hittites didn't exist, or these people didn't exist, or that didn't happen, or this didn't happen. And the Arabs, the Arabs are just mirroring that. They're just taking it to a whole new level. The Jews never occupied the Temple Mount. There never was a first temple. You know, that's just like all these other claims. There never was a Noah. There never was an ark. Well, one day they'll probably find it or they'll find some sort of evidence because that's what God has done. He has salted history with things that validate his word. Not that that will convince people to believe because it will just harden them in their unbelief, but it will give those who do believe him the evidence to confirm them in their belief. Christian evidence, I believe, has more to do with giving us confidence that what we believe is true because it's not going to convince the unbeliever that God exists because he's got more evidence in his soul of the existence of God as per verse 18 than you and I can ever give him through some kind of rational argument for the existence of God or some kind of rational argument for the truth of Scripture. He's suppressing it in, in irrationalism. So revelation is objective. It can be validated, and it's based on a understanding. It's based on a dependent use of logic and reason, dependent upon God. It doesn't, it's not irrational, it's not rejected, rejecting reason, but it is using it under the authority of God. Now, we've run out of time, but I want to, I want to cover this some more next time to show the um, weaknesses of empiricism and rationalism and then to take that and get into an interesting discussion on the arguments for the existence of God. But we won't be doing that next Thursday night because of the conference. And we won't be doing that the next Thursday night because, as always, I take the next week off for vacation. So there will be three weeks before we're back on Thursday night. There will be class that next week, but I won't be here. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to think through these things and to come to a greater validation and understanding of the truth of your word. We pray that as we continue to go forward thinking through what Paul says here in Romans 1, that it may give us greater confidence in the truth and reality of your existence. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.